This is called a transition, folks. A transition in worship. <clears throat> Our scripture passage this morning is going to be one verse in particular. A verse that comes out of 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. Uh, often in the Bible we, we talk about how you're supposed to take a verse and then place it into its context. But there are occasions in which a verse is so fundamental that everything else around it is an application of that particular verse, which is to say that it transcends all context. This is such a verse as that. This is a verse that actually transcends the context in which the Apostle Paul had written it to the Corinthians. It is a verse which, as we shall see, summarizes the gospel message. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9, reading from the English Standard Version. For God says these words through the Apostle Paul. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this Advent season. We thank you for the time that we've had through the last several weeks uh, to look at Scripture and Scripture's testimony to the nativity of Jesus Christ. And now, Father, we continue to look at this, this theme, this, this great theme of the Incarnation, that you, the living God, in the person of your eternal Son, became man. And you did this for us and for our salvation. And so this morning we pray that we would hear these glad tidings with great joy, which you have designed for all peoples that we might once again during this season have a sense, God, of your great love and eternal care for this broken and helpless world. Uh, we would listen, Lord, taught by your Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. So during this Advent season, we have been focusing upon the biblical truth, the biblical theme of the Incarnation. The fact that God has entered into human history, that he was actually born in the little town of Bethlehem, and that this is the reason why we celebrate the Christmas season. At the same time, we've been looking at this matter, this, this, this thing we've been calling the human predicament, uh, how the human race is in a mess which it cannot itself solve. Now, there's an ancient description of this human predicament presented by one of the psalm writers, Psalm 115. And so I want to read a few verses from that for us to see how the nations surrounding Israel had their way of dealing with the problems of life. They scoffed at the Israelites, uh, and yet the response of the psalmist is to show that the way in which they address the issues of life, what they trusted in to address the issues of life, fruitful, no, futile and fruitless. That human beings, in the final analysis, can never solve the issues connected to the human predicament. So here's what the psalm writer says, beginning in verse 2. Uh, why do the nations say, basically saying to the Israelites, where is their God? The response, our God is in heaven. He does whatever pleases him. But their idols, the gods they worship, are silver and gold, 
made by the hands of men. They have mouths, but cannot speak. Eyes, but they cannot see. They have ears, but cannot hear. They have noses, but they cannot smell. They have hands, but they cannot feel. They have feet, but they cannot walk, nor can they utter a sound with their throat. Those who make them will be like them, and so will all who trust in them. The psalmist is stating this message in the context of his day, that when human beings reject the true knowledge of the true God who created them, and instead when they worship and serve the things which they have created, they will become blind and deaf and mute and lame to the real source of their problems, and they will fail to see what is truly needed in a broken and fallen world. Although human history has demonstrated countless times that it is the evil inside of human beings which is the problem, again and again, every generation has placed its hope in man-made solutions. Give us better government. Give us a better economic system. Give us better education. Give us a safer environment, a cleaner environment. Give us a stronger philosophy. Give us the best of science. It's the constant insanity of the human race that it places its hope in all of these things to the rejection of the God who has created us. That really brings us to recognize that the default setting of the human heart is described for us in Jeremiah 2.13. The Word of God puts it this way. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and dug out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that could hold no water. Now, the human condition is a theme that we find all the way through the Christmas carols that we sing in this season. For instance, the third stanza of It Came Upon a Midnight Clear says, And ye, which is old English for y'all, and ye, beneath life's crushing load, whose forms are bending low, who toil along the climbing way with painful steps and slow. Life is a crushing load. We toil along with slow and painful steps. We mourn in a lonely exile here, under Satan's tyranny, under Satan's power and might, facing death and hell along a path of misery where thorns infest the ground. Everywhere the curse is found in this dark world of sin. So the key question is this. What is God's response to the human predicament? And the answer is the incarnation. God entered human history. God has become man in order to save us all from Satan's power when we had gone astray, in order to address and solve the human predicament, to free all those who trust in him from Satan's power and might, in order to bring a true and eternal redemption. This is God's answer. This is the message which brings tidings of great comfort and joy. But this must also affect our own response to the human condition. 
For us as Christians, it is to know, to understand, to see clearly this essential message of salvation and good news so that we can live it, so that we can make it known to others. Now here in this one verse, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9, Paul has given us what is probably the most succinct statement in all of the New Testament describing the Christmas message, describing the gospel. It's basically given to us in three parts. First, the apostle is going to refer to the pre-incarnation of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, the pre-existence of the Son of God. Secondly, he's going to refer to the incarnation and the earthly ministry of Christ. And then thirdly, he's going to refer to the impact which that ministry has had upon us who believe. In other words, here's the outline. Lydia, here's the outline. The riches of Christ, first of all. Secondly, the poverty of Christ. Then thirdly, our riches in Christ. Now, with respect to the riches of Christ, what is referred to here is the pre-existence of the Son of God before he came into the world. Uh, We see this by looking at what Paul meant when he says about the Lord Jesus, that though he was rich. And there are two ideas contained in that simple statement. First, there's a reference to what Jesus was. Meaning, what was Jesus before he came into this world? Well, quote, Jesus was rich, unquote. But what does Paul mean by that? Well, here and everywhere in the New Testament, and everywhere with respect to Paul's faith, it is always grounded in this truth, that Jesus of Nazareth, that historical man who actually lived, was in fact none other than God that he was the Son of God sent into this world, but at the same time, the Son of God is God incarnate, the second person of the Trinity, the Word made flesh. Now consider how Paul refers this to this in his letter to the Philippians. In chapter 2 of Philippians, when he's trying to exhort believers to a humble kind of approach to life and to one another, he says this in verse 6 concerning Jesus, that he was in the very nature God. Other translations would say, though he was in the form of God, yet he did not count equality with God something to be held on to or something to be grasped. So Paul's whole faith is grounded in the truth that in the person of Jesus, we have God incarnate, God who has come into this world. That is why Paul says to the Colossians, Colossians 1 verse 19, For in Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And then in the second chapter, verse 9, For in Jesus, all the fullness of the Godhead dwells in bodily form. What this means is this, that since Christ is fully God, then he existed eternally before the world was ever created. He existed before he came into this world. And this is a description of how he was rich. But more specifically, we should ask, what were those riches like which belonged to the pre-incarnate Son of God when he was in heaven? Now here are the words of Jesus. Tell us more than anything else. In his prayer in John chapter 17, the last night, the night that he was uh, betrayed and then later the next day crucified, 
Uh, in that prayer, as he prays with his disciples, as he prays for his disciples, he makes this petition in verse 5. He says, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. The riches, the riches of Christ in his pre-incarnation was the eternal glory which he had with the Father. Now, it's stated this way in Hebrews 1, verse 3, that Christ is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his nature. But John's Gospel further reveals the nature of this glory if we back up to chapter 12 of John's Gospel, reading from verses 37 to 41. Listen to these words that John is recording about Jesus. Even after Jesus had done all these miraculous signs in their presence, they still would not believe in him. This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet. Quote, Lord, who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For this reason they could not believe, because, as Isaiah says elsewhere, quote, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, so they can neither see with their eyes, nor understand with their hearts, nor turn, or I would heal them. Now, Isaiah said this because he saw Jesus' glory and spoke about him. Now, the Apostle John is telling us that Isaiah, the prophet, some eight, almost 800 years before Christ came into this world, that he, Isaiah, had seen the glory of Jesus. But, but when did Isaiah see this glory? Well, the references that John quotes from the very passage that he quotes from is out of Isaiah chapter 6. And that chapter begins this way. In the year that King Uzziah died, Isaiah is talking about a historic time in history. Uzziah, one of the great kings of Judah, one of the great kings of the people of God in the Old Testament. In the year that King Uzziah died, Isaiah says, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphs, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two wings they covered their feet, and with two wings they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty, the whole earth is full of his glory. The Apostle John applies the experience of Isaiah the prophet 800 years earlier, that that experience which Isaiah himself had was an experience of the glory of Jesus. That Isaiah saw the glory of Jesus when in this great vision during the year that King Uzziah died, he looks up, he sees the heavenly king, God himself, described as the I am the Almighty, the I am the Lord of hosts, whom the, ange the angelic seraphims are worshiping, describing him as the holy, holy, holy God, and to say that this, of this one the whole earth is full of his glory, that was Jesus. 
This is what John is telling us. It's one of the clearest statements in all of the New Testament, one of the most powerful statements in all of the New Testament. It's one of the most incontestable statements in all of the New Testament that Jesus was God incarnate. It can't be erased from the New Testament scriptures. That the great claim of Christianity is that God became man in human history. And this was prophesied hundreds and hundreds of years before it happened. So, we pause and think. We hear the songs we've heard through this season. The one that comes to my mind is this. Mary, did you know that your baby boy has walked where angels trod? And when you kiss your little baby, you have kissed the face of God. The point is this, that what Jesus possessed before he came into this world was a throne and a kingship and a kingdom within the heavenly temple with countless angelic seraphim surrounding him, giving all, him all praise and adoration, recognizing him as the great I Am, recognizing that the whole earth is full of his glory. So all of the riches of position and prestige and power and possessions no one ever had more of these than Christ did in his pre-existence, in his pre-incarnate state when he dwelt with his Father in heaven. It's this display of glory that we find captured in the fourth stanza of what has become my favorite Christmas time hymn, Let All Mortal Flesh Keep Silent. Reading, At His Feet, the sixth-winged seraph, cherubim with sleepless eye, veil their faces to the presence as with ceaseless voice they cry, Alleluia, 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 Lord Most High. Before his incarnation, Jesus was clothed with an eternal weight of glory. But then Paul says that Christ became poor. The poverty of Christ. This is the, the linchpin of everything that Paul wants to say. The poverty of Christ. Paul says it this way specifically. Though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. So that you through his poverty might become rich. Now the phrase, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty... That describes the whole incarnation. It's how we should see the entire earthly life of Christ, from his being conceived in the womb of the Virgin Mary, all through his wondrous childhood and life, his, his life, his ministry, his crucifixion, his burial in the tomb, all of that is described by this one idea, poverty, which has two aspects. First, the poverty of leaving heaven and then the poverty through which he was to accomplish our redemption. Paul refers to the poverty of leaving heaven in Philippians 2, verses 6 and 7. He says, although Christ existed in the form of God, he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. So the poverty... It's how Christ emptied himself to become man, 
especially to take on the role and the service of a servant. All of the New Testament considers this emptying to be the incarnation. The Son of God empties himself of his outward possessions and power and position and prestige. He empties himself of all of that celestial glory, not his essential glory, but his manifested glory, when he leaves heaven to come into this world. He stepped away and he stepped down. And we need to see this as the greatest step downward that God could possibly take. That to become poor as Paul describes it. This is the greatest step of humility possible. God becomes man in order to become the man who serves, the man who is preeminently the servant. The great theologian of the 19th century, Charles Hodge, has written elegant words about what Christ has done in the sense of the poverty and humiliation of the Incarnation. He writes, not only the assumption of human nature, but also all of the circumstances by which it was attended enter into the scriptural view of the humiliation of our Lord. Had he, when he came into the world, so manifested his glory and so exercised his power as to have coerced all nations to acknowledge him as their Lord and God, and all kings to bow at his feet and to bring him all their tributes, enthroning him as the rightful and absolute sovereign of the whole earth, it had still been an act of unspeakable condescension for God to become man. But to be a servant, to be born in a stable, cradled in a manger, to be so poor as to not have a place where he could lay his head, to appear without form or comeliness so as to be despised and rejected of men, makes the condescension of our Lord to pass all comprehension. There is indeed a wonderful solemnity in this. It shows the utter worthlessness of earthly pomp and splendor in the sight of God. <coughs> the manifestation of God in the form of a servant has far more power, not only over the imagination, but also over the heart than as appearing in the form of an earthly king clothed in purple and crowned with gold. We bow at the feet of the poor, despised Galilean with profounder reverence and love than we could experience had he appeared as Solomon in all of his glory. So in other words, we esteem Christ more highly, we love him even more dearly because of the depth of his poverty. For us. And that's the second part. This poverty was for us so that he might die. This is the purpose. It's the deepest aspect of his poverty, and it is done for our sakes. This is how Christ most fulfilled the role of being a servant. So Paul says in verse 8 of Philippians 2 And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now, the Old Testament background here, which Paul was intimately acquainted with, was the prophecy about Christ in Isaiah 53. In this prophecy, we see the themes of poverty and purpose properly woven together. 
Beginning with verse 2 in chapter 53, Isaiah says this, He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And by his wounds we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. This is the ultimate death of the poverty of the incarnation. It is Jesus dying in our place. All of us have gone astray. Jesus pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Only in this way can we be saved. Hymn 257 is more of a Good Friday hymn, perhaps, than a Christmas hymn. But the author, Thomas Kelly, does a consummate job in describing the poverty of Christ. He's written, stricken, smicken, smitten, and afflicted. See him dying on the tree. Tis the Christ by man rejected. Yes, my soul, tis he, tis he. Tis the long-expected prophet, David's son, yet David's Lord. By his son, God now has spoken. Tis the true and faithful word. Tell me, ye who hear him groaning, was there ever grief like his? Friends, through fear, his cause disowning, foes insulting his distress. Many hands were raised to wound him. None would interpose to save. But the deepest stroke that pierced him was the stroke that justice gave. Ye who think of sin but lightly, nor suppose its evil great, here may view its nature rightly. Here its guilt may estimate. Mark the sacrifice appointed. See who bears the awful load. Tis the word, the Lord's anointed, son of man and son of God. This is what Paul meant. That for our sake, the Lord Jesus became poor, leaving everything of heaven to take on the poverty of a suffering servant so that through that poverty, his death, in our place, we might become rich. And so then, what are our riches in Christ? When we've trusted in what God has done for us in the poverty of His Son, we receive all the wealth, all the riches, all the wealth and riches of an eternal glory. This is the climactic thought of the New Testament that we find in so many different places. Now consider these. Romans chapter 8, 16 through 18. Paul says, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And of children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I, for I consider that the sufferings of the present time are not worth comparing 
with the glory that is to be revealed in us. Or 2 Corinthians 2.17. For this light and momentary affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. 1 Corinthians 2, 9 and 10. As it is written, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him, but God has revealed it to us by his Spirit. Romans 8, 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will, he, how will he not also along with him freely give us all things? 1 Corinthians 3, 21, 22. So then let, let no one boast in men, for all things belong to you. Paul, Apollos, Peter, or the world, or life or death, or the things present or the things to come, all things belong to you. And you belong to Christ. And Christ belongs to God. Ephesians 1, 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Colossians 3, verses 1 through 4, Since then you've been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, you also will appear with him in glory. This is what the gospel message proclaims to us about our riches. We have received an eternal life in which we are co-heirs with the Son of God in the fullness of the life to come, possessing all things through our inheritance in Christ possessing every spiritual blessing in all of the heavenly realms beyond what we can possibly and humanly imagine, culminating above everything else in that we will share in the eternal glory of Jesus Christ himself. In response to this, it's possible the unbeliever might ask, but how does this really speak to the human predicament? How does this really as a message, help a world in which everything seems no more than a moment away from raging conflict. On Christmas Day in December of 1863, such thoughts perplexed the mind of a man who was a Christian, who was also America's greatest poet of that era. Two and a half, year, er, two and a half years earlier, shortly after the nation went to war with itself. This man had suffered the loss of his wife in a terrible accident in which her dress had caught fire. He was unable to extinguish the flames, his efforts burning his own face severely. The grief of this loss nearly drove him insane. Earlier that year, March 1863, his oldest son, without the father's knowledge, had left their Massachusetts home, traveled by train 400 miles to Washington, D.C., in order to join President Lincoln's Union Army. But eight months later, late November, his son had been wounded during battle. The bullet entered his left shoulder, traversed his back, exited under the right shoulder blade, just skimming his spine. The doctors warned that paralysis might result but providentially, his son was spared. 
But on this Christmas day, the war that was consuming the country simply mirrored the conflict that was going on inside this poet's own soul. He heard the bells on Christmas day. He heard the singing, peace on earth, but it just did not seem so to him. In response, he put his inner turmoil into words, which we still sing during the season. I heard the bells on Christmas Day, their old, familiar carols play, and wild and sweet the words repeat of peace on earth, goodwill to men. And thought, how as the day had come, the belfries of all Christendom had rolled along the unbroken song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Till ringing, singing, on its way, the world revolved from night to day, a voice, a chime, a chant sublime, a peace on earth, goodwill to men. Then, from each black accursed mouth, the cannon thundered in the south, and with a sound the carols drowned, a peace on earth, goodwill to men. It was as if an earthquake rent the hearthstones of a continent and made forlorn the households born of peace on earth, goodwill to men. And in despair, I bowed my head. There is no peace on earth, I said, for hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Then pealed the bells more loud and deep. God is not dead, nor doth he sleep. The wrong shall fail, the right prevail, with peace on earth, goodwill to men. So wrote Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, whose thoughts moved from the bleak and terrible truth that man's hatred against his fellow man is so strong. Yet the bells of Christmas Day reminded him, not only is God not dead, but the right shall prevail because God has sent his son into this world as the true answer to the human predicament. For Jesus came to address the heart of the human predicament, which is the evil in every human heart. Christ alone can give a new heart. Christ alone can atone for human injustice. Christ alone can forgive sin and wipe away shame. And he did this by coming down. He did this by stepping away from his riches in heaven. He did this by becoming poor in his humanity to die for us that we might live forevermore. And so a couple of contemporary songwriters have written these words. How many kings step down from their thrones? How many lords have abandoned their homes? How many greats have become the least for me? How many gods have poured out their hearts to romance a world that has torn all apart? How many fathers gave up their sons for me? Only one did that for me. Amen. Let's pray. Father, it's all of Christ. All that we have, we have in Jesus. All that we need, we have in Jesus. 
Help us to desire nothing more, ever, ultimately, finally, and fully, than Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. Our final hymn is number 208. O come, all ye faithful. Let's stand and sing. now the benediction. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive adoption as sons. And therefore may the grace of the God-man, even our Lord Jesus Christ, be with your spirit, brothers and sisters, through this season. Amen.